This podcast is brought to you by Lacrosse All-Stars, growing the game one podcast at a time. Welcome to this week's episode of the Know the Game podcast presented by Lacrosse All-Stars. My name is Ryan Conwell. I am an analyst and the NCAA editor here at Lacrosse All-Stars. And I'm really excited to bring my guest to you this week who is Nick Sakevich, the NLL commissioner. He's been with the league for a couple of years, but... Most importantly, this is a very, very interesting and historic time for the NLL, mainly because we're in a period of explosive growth, yet with that growth comes opportunity. And the players right now are in a negotiation with the league over a new collective bargaining agreement, which will determine how they will be compensated in the coming years over this period of expansion. So the whole idea, of course, is that if the league is doing better, the players should, of course, get a cut of that, which I think is something that nobody would disagree with too much. But obviously, there is some disagreement. And with that disagreement, it comes down to how things get split up, how much of a share the players get of the growth of the league. Now, we launched the very first episode of the Lacrosse Classified podcast hosted by Jake Elliott and Evan Schemenauer, which I think is definitely worth some time to listen. I know it uh, sits on your feed at about an hour and a half, um, but it is a very, very riveting hour and a half, let me tell you. A big chunk of that is actually them sitting down with representatives from the Professional Lacrosse Players Association where they go through and they ask some really hard questions of these guys, I'm going to be honest. And what's really exciting for fans of the game is the player reps were answering them. Obviously, they left out some specifics where it was appropriate, but um, there were some pretty good answers there. Now, the next thing is when I was talking to Commissioner Sakevich, um, this was over this past weekend, We knew that there was potential delays coming up for the league. But when I was talking to him, I think it's important to note that we knew going in that we could not go into too many specifics with what the negotiation was going to be. And honestly, there's a couple of reasons for that. One of the first ones is, you know, in total transparency, my personal feeling is that things like this should not be litigated out in the public sphere. Um, the, The reason for that is basically it's a negotiation and you need all the information that both parties are dealing with in order to really make an informed decision of where things should go. You know, without either side really presenting what they're holding um, and, you know, what's going on behind those closed doors, you can't make a truly informed decision of what the true holdups are. Is one side being reasonable? Is one side not being reasonable? And if you're just dealing with one side, in this case, you know, I was talking to the league. I was talking to Commissioner Sakevich, who is in charge of the NLL and is is really responsible for coordinating a lot of the efforts going on on that side. So anything I get from him is going to be one-sided. So 
are we going to listen to that and say, all right, yeah, th- this is uh, this is pretty much how things are? Well, well, no, because that leaves out the entire player side. So when Jake and Evan were able to talk to the PLPA reps, that gets the player side of it. So what we miss there is the dialogue. So each side, independent of the other, can say really whatever they want. They can put their stances out there. And there's no one to say, well, maybe that's a little bit of a mischaracterization or that's not really what's going on. You know, there's always things like this. And when you do get out in public sphere, there is the um, the wonderful battle for public perception, which is always something that when you're dealing with a league where you're trying to get fans interested and involved, that's definitely something that happens. So as the league and as the PLPA work through this, it's important to me that I, as a member of lacrosse media, am not jumping to one side or the other. I do understand the arguments that the Players Association has, and I think a lot of what they are asking for has total merit. On the flip side, what the league is not wanting to concede, there's a lot of fantastic reasoning for that as well. Not every team makes money. Do some teams make money? Absolutely. You know, the, this is a business. They have found ways when they have the right model in place, they have the right attendance numbers, they have the right sponsors, that they pull in a net gain on the year. Now, for the teams that don't do that and they are losing money each year, that's where I think it becomes a very interesting conversation because in this NLL negotiation and everything that's going on with the PLL and MLL in the men's pro game, one of the things that you are hearing a lot is that owners are quote-unquote greedy. They are, they're not being reasonable. They're just holding back their money and not paying the players. But something to keep in mind is that I really, really personally do not feel great about vilifying owners. I think... Can they do things that are unreasonable? Yes. But we do have to acknowledge the fact that there are individuals that are dumping literally millions of dollars into the sport and not seeing a profit at the end of the day. And these are the people that are they making decisions that are selfish? Well, you know, to some extent, yes. They probably don't want to lose a couple million dollars each year. But... I think they also want to make sure that when they do provide more payment to the players and recognize the contributions that the players are making to the game, that it's done so with the right business sense. Now, from the players' perspective, um, the demands on the players are increasing quite a bit as professional lacrosse evolves. And the types of sacrifices they have to make in order to put the best product on the field and perform at the highest level week in and week out is just greater and greater every single season. What they have to do in order to make a team, to stay on a team, and then let alone win a game just keeps on amplifying what they need to do in order to perform as a professional athlete. So you really do have opposing forces and getting a multifaceted agreement across these two groups is is a massive challenge. I mean, let's be honest. There is a reason why 
this has come to such a big negotiating point. Now, that's enough of that part of the conversation. I do want to say with this discussion we're about to have with Commissioner Sakevich, um, he does go into why they are in the situation that they're in. He does give you some information, but, you know, I just want to set your expectations. He does not go item by item through the deal explaining what the league stance is. I think some of it can be inferred, and he does talk about some of the things in detail, and as the conversation goes on, you start understanding the needs of what the league is trying to do in order to grow and attract new owners and new franchises to keep growth, why growth is important, and why the league makes some of the decisions that they do. So regardless of where the CBA stands, I feel like this is a conversation that is definitely worth listening to so that you can really understand some of the thinking that goes on inside of that league front office. Now, before we jump into that interview, I want to take one moment and recognize our sponsor, Summit Lacrosse Ventures. All right, and now let's get things going. I will bring you over to our recent interview with Nick Sakevich, Commissioner of the National Lacrosse League. All right, welcome to this week's show. I am here with Commissioner of the National Lacrosse League, Nick Sakevich. Nick, welcome. Thanks, Ryan. Great to be here. Thanks for having me on. All right, so why don't we just go really quick with your background for anyone that might not be familiar. I read your bio on the site. Oh, a very circuitous uh, route. I was a professional player in the 80s, I retired in 90, um, cut my hair. I was a soccer player, so goalie. Cut my hair, uh, bought a bunch of suits and went to work. And then uh, a couple years before Major League Soccer started, uh, some of uh, my old friends and, and teammates got me involved with the startup of Major League Soccer. Um, I was there for 20, almost 22 years. Uh, built a couple soccer stadiums, uh, ran three teams, uh, co-owned one at the end, the Philadelphia Union, uh, which I brought to Philadelphia along with a band of very exciting fans here in Philly. Um, and then uh, three years ago, I exited my ownership in the union and uh, almost immediately got a phone call from the owners of the NLL saying, hey, you know, you got to come, come help us do what you did in soccer. And uh it took me a while because I'm not a lacrosse guy. I'm a lacrosse guy now. I, I'm actually a honorary lacrosse guy. I still can't hold a stick, but um, I just fell in love with the sport, saw the growth potential, saw the entertainment value of the of the game, and uh, you could sell a ticket to this game. And and so I I took the jump and became the commissioner uh, almost 35 months ago to the day. Many more similarities 
wide open clearing and you know mm-hmm. just trying to tap into some of that full mm-hmm. stuff there's not much linearity so mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. how much of a learning curve was it for you to pick up um just what was going on with the box and kind of <laughs> well it's it's a tale of two stories really on the business side there's nothing different you know the the strategies the growth the revenue streams the expense uh, balance of revenues to expenses it, it's all the same no matter what sport you're in so that was really familiar to me the game itself was unfamiliar and I've just been on a very sharp learning curve and I've discovered that the the nuances between field lacrosse and box are very different so I'm learning both sports um, they truly are very different sports one's an arena sport uh, indoors and the other's on a wide open field as you said um, but I'm loving it. It's very challenging at my, my stage of my career, 30 years in as a player and sports executive, uh, I'm learning new stuff, which is exciting. Now, I'm curious as a goalie, um, did you ever get into football? I did. I played one season for the New York Arrows in 1986 in Nassau Coliseum. And, uh, that I had more injuries in that one year as a goalie playing indoors than I had in probably 18 years of playing outdoor soccer. It was just paint a bullseye on your chest and try to stop shots. It was, it was brutal. Um, similar in some ways, right. To box lacrosse because the movement of the ball, um, you know, box lacrosse is kind of the movement of the ball is similar to basketball. The physicality is similar to hockey. Um, the movement of the ball is similar to futsal, uh, I see a lot of dynamics, um, the positioning, the interplay of uh, offense to defense, the changing of the players, very similar. Yeah, and, and that one's interesting because when you move indoors as a goalie there, those shots can fly everywhere. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> like I said, I had I broke my nose tw- in, in 12 months. I broke my nose twice, dislocated my shoulder and had a pretty bad concussion all all in a 12-month period. And there was a reason they traveled with three goalies back then. So three goalies traveled. Think about why that is. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So I'll, I'll, uh, let you jump off the bad memories there. And, um, one of the things that we do need to ask about is when we're recording this, um, the big news that's going on in the NRL is, of course, there are the labor negotiations. So, you know, right. Of course. Um, negotiations continue. Uh, you know, we have put a very attractive offer on the table, uh, a growth offer. You know, listen, three years ago when I came into this league, we were nine teams, probably looking at going to seven teams. And now we're, um, you know, 11 teams announced 12 with Halifax and more announcements coming, by the way. And you know, we'll be 11 teams this year and this season going to 16 teams, um, I can confidently say. So it, it, things have changed, but we're not there yet, right? We're, there we're three years into my tenure. We're seeing some great things. And we got Turner and Bleacher Report Live that we're launching this year. So there's some really good things that are happening. But, but we're not ready to have a 100% increase in costs to our business. We're just not there yet. So, but that, you know, hopefully if we keep things going and, bring more teams into the league, more jobs, more money, more dues for the union, all of those things are very positive advancements. But we are having ongoing negotiations and you know, hopefully we'll get we'll get to a deal. Um, just for uh, fans knowledge, what does the negotiation process kind of look like? 
representatives from the league side, um, you know, representatives obviously both the players have their, their player reps there, um, that act their current players as well as the union side of it. Um, when we say negotiations of, you know, we, we speaking for the league, mm-hmm. uh, or you know, them being the players on the other side, um, what does that process entail? It's a great question, Ryan. So on the league side, we have a negotiating committee, which is essentially the player relations committee um, made up of five owners and myself uh, and our general counsel. Um, and But we also, you know, I would say pretty much every day we've had um, calls with our full board, or if not every day, every other day, just informing them of the discussions and the proposals going back and forth um, because we have a great board we have some terrific really experienced sports uh, operators you know we've got Kroenke Sports we've got the Buffalo Bills ownership Terry and Kim Pagula we've got independent owners like John Arlotta who sits on that committee um, down in Georgia he's the owner of Georgia so we've got a lot of brain power in our in our board and on the committee which uh, frankly is why we're moving this league forward and I get the resources to move this league forward the way we have in the last three years. Um, On the player side, there are the representatives, one for each team, um, their players, and the um, professional lacrosse players association executives that are on their side. Sure. Because obviously you can't, we're not going to litigate the uh, negotiations here on this podcast. No, so we're not going to do that. <laughs> if, if you were hoping for that, I, you know, I do have to apologize. But we're not going to go into that negotiation now. No. All right. So um, when we talk about league work, um, since you have been in this position that you're in now, um, growth has been you know, almost every other sentence you say involves expansion, growing the league. Um, from a business perspective, what does adding teams do for you? Oh, that's a great question, and there's a lot of answer to that one. Um, so for in, prof- in professional sports in general, if you're not growing, you're dying. Um, if you're not either for a league like ours expanding your footprint a- across your marketplace, uh, and in our case we're 11 teams, we need to get to 30 teams someday. If you're the NFL, you're talking about growing TV ratings. You're talking about, you know, growing um, revenues from your existing fan base. You know, there's a reason the NFL is in Europe. And the NFL is in Europe because it wants to grow its footprint. Um, same with the NBA in China. You know, those are very matured leagues, but they're, they're, they even recognize the need to grow. For us, for the NLL, um, really it's, it's about expansion and smart expansion, not foolish. And we've had our fits and starts as a league in the past. We've had owners who should not have been owners in this league. We've had markets that should not have been markets in this league. And so be, we're being very careful. So with San Diego and Philly joining the league this year, great owners. Joe Tai, passionate lacrosse owner, a very successful businessman. Uh, in Philly, Comcast Spectacor doesn't get any better in this town, frankly, uh, for sports ownership. Um, and it's those types of owners that we're bringing into the league. Uh, we're going to announce our, our 13th team here very soon. Again, another great owner, Halifax, Kurt Styers, fantastic owner, very well-resourced, great marketplace, great arena. 
Um, Tim, Kim and um, Terry Pagula picked up Rochester. We were able to keep that legacy market because they're doubling their investment in, uh, in the NLL. So, you know, it's, I've said it from the beginning. It's great owners that know how to operate and are willing to invest in operations with great arena deals in great markets. And that if we can't check those three boxes, we're not going Yeah, and that's a very insightful question. I, I got to tell you, Ryan, that's excellent because the the true power of uh, a league and its ability to succeed is ownership unanimity and how collectively they think. So this is a unique job. Being a commissioner is a very unique job because I actually get to interview my bosses before they come into the league. So if they don't past me they're not getting even to our board for approval <laughs> so i get, so it's really important in the interview process for an expansion team for example and joe you know joe ty went through this you know with with us and and it's not just me i have a whole team of people that vet the potential owners um and you know i was lucky because with the comcast spectacore group in philadelphia here i've done business with them for the last 15 years here in this town so i knew them right i knew the kinds of people they were um but that's really important you know that's it's really important to make sure we every new owner that comes into this league is like-minded with the rest of the group because uh, the lesson i learned in mls was we had we started out with robert Kraft, phil anschutz lamar hunt and a group in New York that I worked for, John Kluge and Stu Sabotnik, they were on the same page. And then when Don Garber came in as commissioner of MLS, he was very careful to bring in owners that were in lockstep, or at least for the most part. Everybody doesn't always agree on everything, and trust me, we have our knockout dragouts here in the NLL, but everybody's respectful of each other's position. They're like-minded in terms of where we want to go, what our strategy is, where we want to invest our money and and that really is the secret sauce to building the league if you have owners that are fighting each other and not in lockstep you're going to have chaos on your hands and you're going to have a mess Yeah. 
Right. It's not as easy as that, though. You know, it's there's a lot of dynamics in markets, you know, so you'll, you'll have case studies like Saskatchewan, you know, 200,000 people and they need more seats in their building and they do great, um, you know, in large part to the market, but also to the owner and the way Bruce Urban and Al Riz have run that team and managed that team and embraced the fans there. So. Yeah, we look at everything. It's not just checking the boxes on, you know, is it a good sports market, media market, but what is the dynamic in the market? And a big, big piece of it, when I look back at the NLL 30 years and I look all, at all the markets we were in and the buildings we were in, there's two common factors why those teams don't exist there anymore. One, bad building deal. They didn't get the economics that they needed in those buildings. And two, an owner that didn't have the resources to invest in ticket sales, marketing, sponsorship, all of those operational things um, that we know here at the league. We're a league of uh, we're a league office of operators. Every one of us worked at teams for decades. We launched teams. We started teams. We sold tickets. And we know what it takes. We have to find owners that know what it takes and are willing and have the money to invest in things like ticket sales marketing. So it's a complicated uh, answer to what seems like a very simple question. Oh, like New York, New York should be a great market, right? Like, well, yeah, it true, but it needs to have a great arena, a fantastic owner. Georgia, Atlanta, great example, right? Everyone in the sports industry says Atlanta's a bad market, bad market, tough market, hockey didn't work there, basketball struggles, the Falcons until Arthur Blank bought it is actually a great organization now. But soccer, they're putting 70,000 people a game for soccer games in that building. Exactly. So is Atlanta a bad market? I don't think so. You know, I, I don't see any markets out there that you could say are bad markets, but what they're the reason they fail is because of those other things, either bad arena, poor operations. You know, y you have to put the whole – it's not any one answer, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right, and I do find that interesting, you know, bringing up Saskatoon, because if you look at just pure size of Saskatoon and you look at per comparable cities between the U.S., you Yeah, I call that the Green Bay Packers effect. You know, Green Bay, one of the most valuable NFL franchises in a tiny little town. It's uh, not, listen, when we went through the diligence on Halifax, same thing. That town is, you know, almost a million people in the province. Um, World-class city, reminds me of a East Coast, kind of smaller version of San Francisco. Very, you know, nautical Atlantic City with a downtown arena. Incredible mayor, incredible politics hungry for major league sports and so all those things and we spent like two years looking at Halifax and really understanding it and um, you know I think Kurt and his group are going to be wildly successful in that market if they get the operations right if they get the ticket sales piece, pieces right that th that is crucial Mm -hmm. From a fan's perspective, they look around. Uh, 
Arena do. I, I know those two, like we've done the forensic on Boston and Minnesota and Portland and Seattle and, you know, we've done the forensic analysis on every market that the NLL has been in and it's really arena deal. It's, it can't, you can't just go and rent an arena. You've got to have a partnership with the owner or you've got to own the arena, either or. And we just flat out will not go into markets renting arenas. That Those days are over. We're not going to expand into a marketplace where we have to, no matter how wealthy the owner is and how much he's willing to lose, we're just not going to do it because it's not sustainable. You get tired. You get tired of writing checks for losses. That's no fun. You want to win off the field and you want to win on the field. I mean, that's that's why people get into sports ownership. And it, a lot goes into it, Ryan. You know, it's not just uh, all about, you know, passion and, and a vanity investment. It's got to be grounded in some financial sense. So, um, well, right right now, we've got two new teams coming in this year. That's about as much as we can digest per year. We want to be really careful that we don't overexpand and dilute the talent pool and lower the quality of the product. We think the product is sensational, very ticket-sellable, exciting, fun to watch. You've converted a soccer guy into a lacrosse fan, so if you can do that, you can, you know, it's pretty much the product that did that. Um, so, to a year, you know, um, Philly and San Diego this year. We've got um, Halifax and the new Rochester, I call them, uh, Nighthawks. Next year, um, we, we, we may do a third um, in the 1920 season. And then for 2021, we have one more team lined up. We haven't closed on that yet, but we're in deep discussions on that deal. We could add another one that year. We may, or we may decide to push that um, what would be the 15th team off into the 2020, it would be 2022-2023 season. Um, and so the way the pipeline of prospects are lined up, you know, one or two a year until we get to 16 teams. I think we want to take a little bit of a breath at 16. We'll probably have four conferences, for sure at least three um, at that point, and then maybe revisit our playoffs, what they look like, and then um, create the next plan to go from 16 teams to 30. So as you look at these evaluations of new teams coming in and what growth is going to look like, you touched on a couple of the challenges, so you know, let's make that its own discussion right now. What are some of the challenges that you have to clear when you do bring new teams in? Um, you, know, you mentioned you're losing players. So a lot depends on the type of owner that we bring in. So if we bring in an NHL or an NBA organization, the workload on the league office side is a lot less indifferent because the, those NBA and NHL operators or an arena operator, for example, has infrastructure on the ground that they can mobilize. So they already have ticket sales. They already have you know, presidents of teams and organizations that, that can support the startup. So the, 
the support from the league office is a little bit different with those guys. When we have an independent owner, um, it's also very different um, because then the league has to come in and help recruit a, recruit a president, help recruit a general manager, work with that owner to develop the brand and what's the t name of the team and the colors and all of that stuff. So it c really comes down to staffing and, and how we grow the league offices, team services functions. So Dave Rowan, our COO, runs team services. And, you know, Dave's, you know, kind of a one-man band right now. I mean, he's out there helping onboard uh, San Diego and Philly, working with Halifax on their business and strategic plan, uh, working with the Pagula organization in a different way uh, on the lacrosse side of things to help them and to launch new Rochester. Uh, in the right way and then we have been working with that 13th team like I said we'll be making that an announcement very soon and that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of resources to do so I think in order to gear up for that expansion it's about staffing onboarding the new teams in the right way so they don't you know, we're not just throwing them the keys and saying hey we'll see you at opening face-off you know we're working with them to make sure they launch in the right way you only have one shot to launch you know, you can't, there's no redos when you launch a new team. Uh, you can't, like, take a timeout and say, well, that didn't work. Let's go back and do it again. You got one shot to do it, and you got to get it right. Yeah, you don't want to rebrand that For sure. For sure. So turn, the Turner relationship with David Levy and Bleacher Report Live and, and Lenny Daniels, the president of Turner Sports, and, and all of those fine folks over there is absolutely transformational for the game. Um, and why? The reason it is is because they have the, the reach and the ability to go to a global audience via digital. This iPhone is a television today, and it's an incredibly powerful marketing vehicle for our sport, not just box lacrosse but lacrosse in general so br live bleacher report the uh, social uh, platform the house of highlights which is their version of you know espn sports center is an incredibly powerful tool for us to unlock the the fun uh, of the nll the excitement the power of the athletes the cool stories of the athletes lives off the floor as well as the great stuff they do on the floor that's what this sport has never had. It's never had a broadcast partner that can unlock that in a first-class way. So moving from NLLTV.com to BR Live and putting NLLTV on BR Live, we have a partner that can distribute NLLTV in a much broader sense. To be honest with you, NLLTV for the last two years was a beta test. We weren't sure. We made a big investment in developing that um, platform and putting it to the fans. Um, but the production wasn't great. And so what going into this year, um, the league office, we've hired Joel Feld here. Joel is a longtime television producer, executive of live sporting events. You know, he did a couple Olympics. He, he's done ESPN and Nesson up in the New England area. 
um, very seasoned um, executive that is working with each one of the teams. And the owners in each market are investing heavily into their arena infrastructure to br- produce these games and, and, and improve the quality coming over from NLL TV to BR Live. So that's a big investment. It's millions of dollars um, that the owners have invested to produce the television uh, stream in a much more reliable and better way. So the fans are going to see a marked difference on that. More reporters, you know, each of our arenas will have a floor reporter and two people in the booth. We've hired three people here at the league office to do um, the relax show in front, you know, talent in front of the camera. We built a studio here in Philadelphia that we've brought down from Toronto. Um, we have a in-house um, uh, production uh, person who is going to be uh, producing all of those uh, pre-weekend highlight shows, post-weekend highlight shows, and then also doing documentary content, which is all be being developed out of here. So there's going to be a large menu of stuff for the fans to grab onto on the BR Live platform. So you were mentioning that NLL TV is kind of being a beta tester. What, what were the biggest lessons learned through um, making and then make some of these decisions that you're making? The biggest lesson was the Twitter um, live game of the week we did the last two seasons. When when that game was put up on Twitter, game of the week, and promoted by Twitter heavily, we got extraordinary viewership numbers. I mean, we averaged about 350,000 viewers per game on those. No, that's a real that's a real audience. And not only that, they weren't just drop-ins and curiosity seekers. We averaged 57.5 minutes per viewer. So they watched most of the game on average. So real audience, that was the biggest learning, and, and we realized, okay, people will watch this product if it's presented in the right way and it's marketed and people know where to, where to get it, how to get it, where to watch it. Now, keep in mind, that was free, not behind the paywall. So behind the paywall, the numbers go down, but still we, we saw a five times multiple of viewers when we went from – um, before I got here, we were actually my first season here, we were on Fox, Sports Go, and ESPN3. Um, those viewership numbers were five times on NLL TV when we moved to NLL TV. Why? Because we marketed it. We told our audience where to find it, how to get it, where to see it. So all of that uh, was really important in that beta test um, mode, and it convinced us to now, okay, let's invest more money now into getting a deal with a partner like uh, Bleacher Report Live. So, and I'm curious when you talk about expansion teams and what works really well with Twitter, um, one of the things you did do with the Twitter game of the week was you also had the, the set, you can almost call it the, the premier broadcasting team that you know, would travel around with those games. Um, that's something you see a lot of other leagues do. Um, you know, you have the, the sort of team for the game of the day on that particular network with other entities. Um, perspective, there's whenever a, a new market launches and you know you get the broadcasting teams in there, they probably don't have Twitter, they probably don't have Facebook, whatever. <laughs> it's just like players, right? <laughs> um, so one of the things I'm curious about is do you see um, from a broadcasting perspective going to that sort of model where you get more of like the, the traveling premier team for a game of the week or a game of the day, whatever it might be, if it's like a Saturday Sunday? Things very local and try to use more of a local channel to help as much as the community. 
So spot on. And I think you're going to see the fans are going to see a significant uh, improvement in talent. You talked about a shakeup in talent before. And with all due respect, we had to shake it up. It just it wasn't of the quality that we need to deliver for the BR live broadcasts. And, you know, we took a giant step forward last year. If anyone watched our playoff games or our championship game, that was the quality that you're now going to see. I'm touching wood here and this is all on Joel Feld he's got to deliver this and that's why we hired him to work with each of the teams to deliver the same kind of quality we delivered during the playoffs and the championship game for every game and I think you're going to see every game really to us the way we're looking at it and the way the teams are looking at it every game is going to be treated like it's a national game. Yes. Right. Well, um, so back in February at our board meeting, we presented the Turner BR Live um, opportunity. The board unanimously voted to approve that deal for obvious reasons. But with that approval also came a commitment from the board to invest in arena quality production to the tune. Like I said, it's millions of dollars for these owners to invest in that. So they're stepping up. Um, they're stepping up to deliver a better broadcast experience for the fans. And each one of our arenas um, unanimously approved a budget to upgrade their arena production. Excellent. So definitely look forward to seeing what that uh, turns into this year. Mm-hmm. I try to go to as many local games as I can, but you know, no matter what, I'm watching the ones online. So yeah. the, more, the more improved those are, the, the happier I'll be for sure. Me too. <laughs> Mm-hmm. What is the actual demographic of the league, and who are you trying to target? Because box for cough is something that isn't in the DNA of American sports fans. We have an emphasis on field to golf, and even hockey struggles in a lot of markets where you know box for cough kind of leeches off of the hockey culture quite a bit as well. So. Mm-hmm. So it's really twofold. One of the things that we didn't, when I took over as commissioner, I didn't have much of a staff. We have a staff now that um, goes in and understands who our audience is. And we, but we really didn't know who our fans were. We didn't know who were sitting in the arena. You know, I'd go to Buffalo, 16,000 people. Who are these people? Where do they come from? What do they do? What we very quickly found out, and which really was an eye-popper for me, is that 60% of our fans across the league in general never picked up a lacrosse stick, 60%. 40% are hardcore lacrosse fans. So we identify that pretty quickly. So that's two markets we have to market to. We have to be an authentic league and an authentic game to honor the la- hardcore lacrosse fans, but we also have to be entertaining and exciting because 60% of our fans are buying a ticket to a game that they never played. That's actually a pretty cool dynamic. That, that means that you can convert more soccer guys like me into lacrosse fans, right? You can convert a basketball fan. You can convert a hockey fan. You can convert maybe an, an entertainment seeker who maybe isn't a sports fan but just loves the event and loves the entertainment. And you've been to our games. I mean, there are, you know, 
part world-class lacrosse athlete, athletes, part rock music, uh, a rock concert, part, you know, entertainment, live entertainment, and they're just fun to be at. So when you have that, you can sell a ticket. So back to your question. We're young. We know that. We're the sport of the millennial generation, no question about it. We're Where our growth is is in the new kids coming up that have played the sport, and there's millions of them across the country. It's the fastest-growing team sport in the U.S. now. It's been that way in Canada, although Canada has some challenges because soccer is kicking butt in Canada, and I think taking a little bit out of – yeah, no, I mean, it's it, like I know I saw the growth of soccer in Toronto, Montreal, and now I see a Canadian league growing. So lacrosse has its growth challenges and its competition is soccer in Canada. So that we have an eye on that. But in the United States, lacrosse is number one in terms of growth team sports. That's going to mature over the next few decades. We have to stay in front of that young audience, that eight year old today. We have to stay in front of for 20 years. So when that eight year old's 28, they have money to buy a ticket and be a Philadelphia Wings fan. And, and so we have to do that. So that's a very distinct market. The, the millennials in their 20s and 30s, that's a core market because they have uh, short attention spans. They want to be entertained. They want to be delighted. And they're a very discerning consumer. So we have to deliver an electric, exciting product in our arenas. We work with our teams to do that. And then we have an older audience. We have, like in Buffalo, Buffalo's been around 27 years, I think. So think about the 20-year-old that came to a Bandits game 27 years ago. He's in his 50s or close to it. So we have to market to that group. So those are the distinct audiences that we have. We're working with our teams to laser in on all three of those components. In soccer, we had... We had um, ethnic fans who came from other countries who knew the game, and then we had Americans who had not known the game. Those were our two distinct markets. So we've identified who our fans are. We know uh, a little bit about them. We're learning more about them every day. We need to, and we'll develop marketing strategies and service strategies for all three of those markets. No, easy. I watched Yale win a national championship, and I watched Joe Sy celebrate on the field. Uh, and it was just great to see uh, how much passion he has for the game, and uh, that was fun. That was fun to watch. That was a nice one. Yeah, it really was. It really was. Nope. All right. Another fun one. What's something funny from this past week? Oh, yeah. So this past week um boy i've been uh knee deep in the cba negotiations so i can't say that i've had a lot of <laughs> had a lot of fun this week um so my 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 son max uh, forwards forwards me all these like really ridiculous fun videos from time to time most of them political but we won't get into that um but i guess uh yeah he sent me um, just a really funny soccer video of something that happened this week um, when Cristiano Ronaldo scored a goal against 
um, Man United in the Juventus United game, and and he pulled up his shirt. And if you if anyone that follows Cristiano, he's got to be the most incredible physical specimen on the planet. And his body was just ripped beyond belief. And I, I kind of laughed at that. I was like, oh my god, that's I've never seen an athlete like that before. Yeah. Yeah, they do. They're machines. And, and you know, I like, that's one of the things that impressed me about our guys in our league for for the type of league that we are. I was so blown away how fit and and, you know, just they're specimens. You know, this is not a men's beer league. These guys are serious athletes. And I was really like, especially the the goalies in our league are unbelievable. Like I can't as a goalie, I know the commitment you need to be really good at that position. And, you know, our guys are just amazing. Oh, it's unbelievable, Ryan. I mean, I'm I'm six one. I was I was tall in my day in the '80s as a goalkeeper. I'm a I'm a midget, even to a field player these days, or or like a lacrosse players are amazing. So, all right. So, what's something that you see the lacrosse community talking about too often? You know, I'm sure you uh, get all sorts of notices of uh, you know what's happening on social media. Um, what do you think people spend too much? Uh, apologizing for not being a big sport. Um, I saw this in soccer, too. I think, you know, we had an inferiority complex for years and years and years, decades, in fact. Um, no reason to. Uh, we have an incredible sport with incredible athletes. We're not the NFL. We're not the NHL. We're not the NBA. We should know that and embrace that. And actually, in some respects, I'm glad we're not those leagues because those leagues have challenges, as we all know. Um and I think I think people talk too much about like, well, we're only lacrosse or we're just lacrosse. I, I, you'll never hear that coming out of my mouth. I think we have one of the most dynamic, fastest growing sports in the world. We see more countries picking up lacrosse sticks. We see more kids in the U.S. picking up lacrosse sticks. And we're going to be a big league. Um, there's no doubt in my mind. I may have had a doubt three years ago because I didn't know really what I was getting into. But there's no doubt if we partner across the field game and the box game it's not just field against box or box against field kids growing up today are playing both and they will grow up watching both and we've got to bring those those two games within our sport together but there's no doubt that this is the sport of the new generation of millennials Not at all. Um, in fact, I view it all additive. I think there's uh, room for growth of all three of them. Uh, again, like I said, kids are growing up today. If you go to North Jersey, every kid who's part of a club has a box program, has a field program. They're growing up with the sport in, the, in both ways. 
I think more lacrosse, things grow, things grow, more sponsors, more money, more broadcast, more lacrosse is better. No, I, I, listen, absolutely. I lived it in soccer. I, you know, thir- 30 years ago, I played in front of 3,000 people in Tampa Stadium. You know, today they're putting 70,000 people into Mer- Mercedes uh, Arena in Atlanta. Players are getting paid more money. You know, the international game is coming to the U.S. Things change dramatically. So in my view, more lacrosse is better. Um, collaboration. Uh, I think the sport is so new and so young. Everybody's trying to find their own little niche and they're grabbing for, you know, the money in their own way. Uh, I think what, again, I go back to my soccer experience. What happened right around 2000 is U.S. soccer, Major League Soccer, the minor leagues all came together and started to work together to grow the sport. Um, I think there's a lot of fragmentation right now in lacrosse, and everybody's trying to, and understandably, right? You, they want to create a lacrosse business, and they're all like out there trying to pay the bills and grab the money. But I, I think it would be very smart of the industry of lacrosse to work together better. So, you know, from the beginning coming here, you know, we partnered with U.S. Lacrosse, and Steve Stenerson and his group down there have been incredible to work with, and they've really been true partners with us to help market the game and come together. You know, we're, we're talking to, you know, U.S. Box Lacrosse with, uh, uh, with Matt, and, and those guys that run that uh, project, we're trying to work with the Canadian Lacrosse Associations. You know, we, we've got to come together. That's, that's the one thing I hope that people start doing. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, it is exactly. It's a document Mm. where, whether it's internal to an organization or one organization getting in front of another for selfish, I'm not saying selfish necessarily negatively, but they're trying to do whatever's best for their group, not necessarily for the sport to really push that growth forward at at the highest level. No, absolutely. And I I have to commend... um, Steve Stenerson down at U.S. Lacrosse that pulled together a leadership summit of the outdoor leagues, our league, um, and and really get us around a table to start talking about how do we grow the game together? Because I know separate and apart. I mean, we in 2000 soccer was on its you know two th- from 90 when I retired, soccer was virtually dead. To 2000, it stumbled and bumbled for a decade. And it really it wasn't going anywhere. And it was on a precipice of failure in 2000, 2001 again. Um, but all the big constituents came together and they collaborated and galvanized to grow the sport. I see this is deja vu for me all over again with another sport. Uh, lacrosse is in the same point in time that soccer was in 2000. We can either really come together and blow this sport up in a big way or continue to be fragmented and fight each other and you know the sport will go nowhere if that happens all right so let me jump into the last question which um coming in your position this question is 
deal with it every day, but all right, let's say in some magic world you're given $50 million to do something for the poor. How would you do it? It's actually a good segue from the last topic we just talked about because right. what I would invest that money into um, a company that would aggregate and bring together all these uh, fragmented pieces of lacrosse from you know the Federation of International Lacrosse to US Lacrosse to Canadian Lacrosse to US Box to the very successful tournament operators across the country and bring us all together under one roof to sell market and grow the sport of lacrosse We did it in soccer. It's called Soccer United Marketing. We started it in 2001. It's now the largest soccer marketing and promotions company in the world, single one. Uh, it's a one-stop shop for soccer, whether it's U.S. men's soccer, Major League Soccer, any major property, Mexican national team, touring rights, on and on and on. And that company is almost a billion-dollar company today, and that was uh, 18 years ago. Yeah, I, I think we can do the same thing in lacrosse. I really do. All right. Well, that's all I have for you. Did you have any other questions or points you wanted to bring up? No, just really, uh, really great chatting with you this morning. I enjoyed, I enjoyed it. Um, you know, we're here in our new offices in Philadelphia, and I welcome you anytime. And anyone that wants to stop by, we're pretty proud of this operation here. Thanks, Ryan. Yes, it's time to get back to playing lacrosse. Thanks. Bye. So thank you for listening again this week, and I want to bring more attention to the other podcasts we have here on Lacrosse All-Stars in the various feeds, whether you find us on Stitcher, iTunes, SoundCloud, um, you just look on our website. There's a lot of other really great stuff out there. So the Outside the Eight podcast with Cassie Brunel, focusing on women's lacrosse. She's had some very powerful interviews recently that can really teach you a lot of things about what it's like to be an athlete and a lot of the challenges that different players go through. You know, it's a it's a different change of pace from some of the other conversations that we have, especially these um, really in-depth, you know, CBA business discussion type of things and where the growth of the game is going. I think when you go back and bring it down to a personal level it really helps um, provide some more clarity into the lacrosse community and then of course is the brand new lacrosse classified podcast with jake elliott and evan chevenauer and that one posted on tuesday uh, november 13th and i want to make sure that you take some time to go listen to that one there's a lot you can learn from what's going on with these negotiations Jake and Evan do an excellent job, and we look forward to what they're going to be doing through this NLL season. Now, speaking of the NLL season, it's worth noting that a statement came out from the NLL that there is going to be a two-week delay in this season. So we already know that because of these labor negotiations, there's going to be a two-week pause. It's unfortunate, but that's kind of where we're sitting right now. And also, don't forget about the recent postings of the other Know the Game podcasts. Uh, the most recent one was, of course, with Cannons, Boston Cannons president, 
Ian Frenette. I think that's another really interesting conversation that gives you that front office perspective of running professional lacrosse teams. Thank you again, and we will catch you next time.